Hello and welcome to HX Superheroes, where we explore the full story of human-centered leadership when it comes to making strategic and operational decisions, no matter what your business is. In today's episode, we talk to Dr. Peter Fader, one of the world's foremost authorities on consumer and customer behavior and customer-centered business. He is a professor at the Wharton School of Business and was named to Advertising Age's first ever 25 marketing technology trailblazers in 2017. His most recently published book, The Customer-Based Audit, is a guide to understanding customer buying behavior. And now that's especially important in today's economic climate as consumers, customers, and corporate leaders look to get more value from their activities and their customer base. As a professor, author, and business owner, Peter uncovers patterns of consumer behavior across a wide range of industries. His pioneering work in behavioral data science has shaped the way that we forecast purchasing trends and continue to help companies build better strategy and position new products effectively. Peter, thank you for coming today. I, I heard you just rolled off an airplane to be with us. That's great to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity to it's talk about to all this stuff. So. Well, thanks for coming all this way to join us on our uh, HX Superheroes podcast. Now, for our listeners, we always like to kick things off and ask a little bit about our guests. And uh, so, Peter, can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up, and what led to uh, you getting to where you are today? Sure. So I, I, I'm, I'm mildly embarrassed about it. I grew up in New York uh, on Long Island. Uh, and I was just a, a, a math kid. I just loved playing around with numbers. I was uh, just just really infatuated with with sports statistics and just any number pattern thing I could find. You know, memorizing pi to a hundred places, just yeah. just really stupid, pointless things like that. Uh, uh, so a, a kid like that is going to be a math major. Uh, I, I did so at, at MIT. Uh, I had no idea what I was going to do with all that. I, it, back of my mind, I figured I'd end up just with some mundane job. I'd go to you know Wall Street or, or something like that. Uh, I hadn't really thought much about it. But this one professor came to me in my senior year at MIT. She was a marketing professor. And I had just taken a course on marketing models. Didn't care about the marketing, like mathematical models. And she said, you ought to get a PhD in marketing. And I said to her, literally said to her, you ought to get your head checked. <laughs> I'm not a, a marketing guy. I'm a math guy. I'm a numbers guy. And, and no, leave me alone. Uh, and she was very persistent. Her name is Lee McAllister. She's a professor now at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and she, uh, she basically, keep in mind, this is 1982 or 1983. It's a million years ago. And she said, we are building the electron microscope of the customer. We are building the technology that we're going to know so much about each and every customer and you know what they're doing and who they're doing it with and for how long. Uh, and you could take all those models you like to really understand customers at a level that we never could before. And A, it's going to be like really interesting for a mathy kid like you. B, you'll be one of very few people doing it. And C, it could have real impact uh, in the business world, in the academic world. And uh, well, on one hand, um, I, I gave in. I said, okay, fine, I'll get the PhD, leave me alone. Um, but I was still pretty skeptical about it. Uh, the, the, this whole story seemed kind of ridiculous. Uh, but here I am, 40 years later, she was right. 
Uh, and I'm so fortunate to be riding that wave of, of customer data and customer centricity. Uh, and just every day, it just becomes more and more fun. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, it obviously has served you very, very well. So tell me a little, have you got any passions, any hobbies outside of work? I heard something about money or something like that. Uh, yeah, well, it's not just money. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of a lot of people at Wharton who are passionate about money for the wrong reasons. Um, for me, it, it's actually it's the numbers on the money. Um, ever since I was a little kid, and Mom would come home from the grocery store, and I would look at all the the dollar bills that she brought home, and I'd look at at least a U.S. dollar bill has this eight-digit serial number on it, and some numbers were just more interesting than others. And I would just look at the number and say, you know, on a zero to one hundred scale, this one gets a forty, but this one gets a ninety. Uh, and it was just a silly hobby. It wasn't like I was playing, uh, you know, liars poker or anything like that. It just I just I would collect the interesting numbers. I had shoeboxes filled with interesting dollar bills. Uh, so when this whole um, internet thing started, um, I, I bought and set up the website coolnumbers.com. It's a it's a lame looking website. Does it still exists. It today? still exists, and there's a lot of people around the world with far too much time on their hands. <laughs> Uh, and every day I'm getting emails from people saying, oh, I got this bill, what's it worth? And, uh, I, you know, I, I, and I tell people, I, I don't buy and sell these things, I'm not, uh, but, I, but I do collect them. Uh, and so I have the Universal Coolness Index. Right. That tells you on the zero to 100 sky with this ridiculous algorithm. Uh, and I'm still serious about it. And I mean, I can, I'm not going to, I can. I could whip out some interesting dollar bills right now. Um, <laughs> but it just shows just the kind of, Depths, the, um, the the depravity of this this obsession with with numbers and right. data and so on. And again, I just thank my lucky stars and my fairy godmother, Lee McAllister, that she <laughs> set me down a path that could I could actually do something productive with with those interests. Oh, that's fantastic. So, what uh, can you tell us a little bit about your path? to Wharton, how you became a professor at one of the preeminent schools in, in the business landscape? It's a right time, right place. It really is. And I'm not saying that with any kind of you know a false humility. Uh, it goes back to this Lee McAllister story. Uh, and there just weren't a lot of like serious, heavy-duty quant people in marketing uh, at that time. Yep. Uh, and uh, so, so here we are, mid-1980s, and that electron microscope of the customer is just being built. And every business school is saying, you know, we need someone like that. And, you know, an MIT math kid would be, you know, even though I was, I was immature and arrogant and not, not even sure I wanted to do this for a living, but what the heck, we'll give it a try. Uh, and, and Wharton, uh, you know, took a chance on me. Uh, and I've been there now for 36 years. And it's been just an amazing institution. Uh, not only you know, is it just a wonderful business school, just has all that great reputation, but it's a great group of, of colleagues, great group of students, and the school has been just incredibly supportive of, of some silly courses that I've wanted to teach. Well, I mean, uh, they're not silly, but, but unusual courses, uh, and just other kinds of activities, and even uh, supporting some of the, these, these outside businesses that I run. It's been just a great environment to, to, to learn and expand and, yeah. and influence and enjoy. Yeah, and so you, you've got the benefit of both academia and application in the business world. You've, you've started, ran a couple of companies. What made you become so fascinated and interested in customer centricity and consumer behavior? I kind of backed into it, actually. So for me, 
It's about the math. It's about the data. It's about the patterns. So I build a lot of different statistical models to try to predict, you know, how many customers are you going to acquire and how long are they going to stay and how often are they going to buy and how much are they going to spend? I'm doing this stuff kind of because it's fun. It's, it's at least as fun as collecting dollar bills. <laughs> um, and there's a market for it, uh, uh, both an academic market where I can write these all these uh, you know, journal articles as well as companies showing some interest in it. Uh, early in the career, it was mostly about the product. So let's predict how many how many sales of this new product or this new movie or this new website, whatever. Uh, and right around the turn of the century, as corny as that sounds, they really did a, a pivot to say instead of focusing on the product as that fundamental unit of analysis, yeah. let's focus on the customer. Uh, and let's instead of say how many people are going to buy the product, we'll say how often is this customer going to make purchases. Uh, and uh, some of these ideas of customer lifetime value, customer retention, again, we're just starting to mm. percolate through academia and industry. So I'm building out all these models, and they're good. They work really well. They can give accurate forecasts, really good diagnostics. And so in the uh, you know 2009, 10 area, got these models. They're really good. They have very strong implications for what you should and shouldn't be doing with your business. And I'm kind of shouting from the mountaintops and people are ignoring me. They're ba they basically look at me as some you know, academic you know, yeah. crank. They, uh, uh, and so I, I need to reach people. You know, Putting these journal articles in front of them isn't gonna do the trick. And that's why I went down kind of two parallel paths. One is to start writing these kind of you know, lightweight books that, and when I say lightweight, I don't mean there's not rich content to them, but there's not a lot of math in them. Right. Let's bury the math, but let's talk about the, 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 the why, the, uh, the, the so what. Uh, so started writing these books on customer centricity in a way as kind of a facade, as a Trojan horse uh, to, to get people to care about the models. So that was number one. And number two was to start founding these companies. You know, I had all this credit for, you know, founding businesses and so on. But keep in mind that I was a professor at Wharton for, you know, 20 plus years before the thought ever crossed my mind. I'm yep. not a born entrepreneur. I mean, really, if anything, I'm a, you know, if you can't do, then teach kind of guy. I was quite content to put these methods out there, talk about why they're important, and let other people, or my students and others, commercialize it. But at some point, it became both important for me to do it, to stand behind this stuff, uh, and irresistible, uh, just surrounded by just a, a bunch of just really smart people uh, instead of just farming it out, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was just a very successful, very interesting, very impactful in a way that, that, that all the research that I had done for decades before that just, just couldn't match the impact of some of these commercial projects. So, I mean, I, I think clearly you're a very humble man because uh, if I'm not mistaken, one of the businesses that you did start, you in fact sold that to Nike. Tell us a little bit about can you, that experience sure, sure. and how you were able to translate these models and your passion for mathematics that drive customer and help you identify what customer behavior looks like. How does that tie back to that, that business experience that you had? Uh, yeah, so, so we started that, that first company, Zodiac, yeah. and the main goal was to bring customer lifetime value to life at full commercial scale, not just an abstract academic concept, not just a, you know, here's a little sample thing, you could try it on your, no, let's do this for real. Uh, and we worked with 
dozens and dozens of different companies from, from all sectors, all geographies. That was one of the beautiful things about it, is that one day we'd be working with a retailer, next day we're working with a B2B logistics company or a hotel chain, a pharmaceutical company, gaming, telcos, yeah. you name it. Uh, and just to, to show that lifetime value can be calculated for each of these different kinds of companies, it can be impactful, it can help them make more money in a sustainable, defendable, ethical way. Uh, and every time we do it, I, I never knew for sure the model's going to work here. And wow, they do. This is cool. Uh, and so it was wonderful to see the the impact that it was having on a lot of these companies. I had no intention of selling this thing. This was this was my baby. This was my soapbox. You know, this was my way to spread the gospel. I yep. had no intention to sell Nike, which is you know, such a fascinating company. Uh, uh, they uh, were a client, and then they and in. Uh, January, February of 2018, they said, we want it all. Yeah. And my view was, well, you know, we'll hire as many, you know, data scientists and customer success managers to meet all of your needs, but you can't have the company. And they said, oh, we're going to make it worth your while. And they did. Uh, and it's, it's such an incredible story because too many companies, too many executives approach these ideas often out of desperation that nothing else is working. Okay, so let's try the customer thing. You know, we've been trying to improve the product, but there are all these competitive headwinds, and it's, it's usually about the product. And so companies usually turn to the customer thing uh, almost as a last resort. Yep. Not true for Nike. Nike approached it from a position of strength. They were doing great with their products, but they knew they could do even better. And Nike found it um, not so much frustrating, <clears throat> but they knew that they were leaving money on the table because what, what is Nike's business is to take boxes of, of shoes and push them through the distribution channel to you know Walmart and Foot Locker and other stores, but having no direct connection with those end users. And they wanted to change that. And how did they? Uh, well, uh, to their credit, uh, whether it's with um, um, mobile apps and loyalty programs and just other ways of, of tracking not only who's buying what, but who's doing what. Right. And doing so in a way that gets people to, to want to be tracked. <laughs> it's not creepy, it's actually gonna be enhancing. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a wonderful experience for them to, to share data and get advice and, and, and so on. Uh, and, and, and so yeah, they, they have much better understanding of who their customers are, and then they want to go to the next step instead of just the, the, the who and the what, but the you know, how much, the, the yep. future value, in order, to, uh, in order to, to know which customers to focus on, in order to understand what kinds of products and services they should develop for those customers. And so they came to us, bought the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, it was a, a wonderful outcome, and yep. then we turned right around and started a new business, which we're, we're still running today. That's fantastic. So, so basically, Nike could work out the lifetime value of a first-time buyer of, of shoes, Air Jordans, for example, or a repeat buyer that came back time and time again That's as a result right. of developing such great products over time. That's right. But the, and the other key part is, is to not limit it just to purchases. Let's look at other activities as well. Again, whether it's it's you know the, the fitness tracking or actually if, if you go to the, the the flagship Nike store in New York, yep. you don't want to walk in there unless you have the mobile app loaded on your phone and open because there's just so many interesting activities in there, uh, and you want to self-identify. You want to say, hey, this is me, uh, and there they will then uh, kind of triangulate that data with 
the things you've bought and things you've said and the people you've done it with and just make it an overall enhancing experience for you. So it's it's much more comprehensive than purchasing alone. Great credit to them. Yeah. So the customer base audit book. Tell me a little bit about this. How did this come about? And again, yeah. I'm going to give you a bit of a plug here for, hey, our, that's for people who are listening and watching. Um, um, so it's a great book, but tell us a little bit about how it came about. You know, what's really interesting about it is that even though it's book number three, it, it predates the the other two books by by basically a full decade. Uh, that is, as uh, I was doing a lot of this work, as I mentioned, at, at the turn of the century, pivoting from from product to customer. And my, I've had a lot of wonderful co-authors over the years, but my main co-author, uh, a gentleman named Bruce Hardy here at the London Business School, uh, and we would do a lot of this work on customer lifetime value and, and all this other stuff. Uh, and he said, I found an email from him back from 2004, this is very early on, saying uh, there, there really should be a, a customer-based audit. You know, we ought to write a book on it. So this was actually a seed that, that he planted, again, this is 19 years ago. And it wasn't until after writing these other books and, and fleshing out all the research and commercializing some of it that we finally found the, the time and really the need uh, to do this. Because as we push this customer centricity thing further and further and further, um, there, there's kind of, kind of two motivations for this book. If, if you go back to the title of it, yeah. Customer-Based Audit, Part of it's the customer angle, and part of it's the audit angle. So on the customer side, uh, you know, there's a lot of companies out there who might read my stuff, and, and they might be skeptical. They might say, this doesn't apply to us. This doesn't make sense for us. All, all of the, the, the advice that, that, that Vader is putting out there um, uh, just wouldn't make sense for, for us and our customers. But once you do the audit, once you kind of look carefully, objectively, descriptively, at the nature of your customers, how they vary from each other, how they change over time, and you start to see some amazingly regular patterns. It's like, whoa, maybe this stuff does apply to us. So, so in, in some way, you know, if you look at the, 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 the subtitle of the book, the first step in the journey to customer centricity is let's, don't, don't take my word for it. You know, look at your own internal transaction log data and you're going to see these kinds of patterns, and it's going to kind of beg the question of how do we leverage them? And that's where the customer centricity stuff comes in. So that's number one. Number two is I'm just so frustrated that we have all of this great data. We have built the electron microscope of the customer, um, but there's just still not a lot of accountability around it. Uh, when it comes to, to companies uh, in, their, in their financial statements or in their investor day presentations, they don't say much about the customers. And if they do, it's usually going to be some lightweight stuff about you know customer satisfaction and things like that. We want accountability. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one is tradition, yeah. that because we didn't have the electron microscope of the customer when accounting standards were, were created and when today's CEOs were in business school, mm. it's just never in anyone's mind. Number two, to the extent that we are going to talk about customers, they tend to be viewed as kind of a, as, a, as an intangible asset, which is kind of ironic and, 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 and bitter. You know, that this, this, table, this, this table can be viewed as a, as a tangible asset, and we can put that on our balance sheet, but customers can't be. Because they, I, I don't know why, but, but once you start seeing the patterns and you can see how regular and predictable and accountable customer behavior is, it's just begging to be included in, in that same kind of rigorous audit-based manner. 
And so a lot of companies are starting to, just on their own, reveal more about their customers. Uh, and sometimes they're revealing good data, sometimes it's not so good. Sometimes the way they'll define something like a retention rate or cost per acquisition will be wildly different than other companies. Mm -hmm. So again, let's have standards, let's have guidelines, let's encourage companies to do this sort of thing, uh, and here are the first steps for them to do it. What um, What's the biggest mistake that most companies make when it comes to customer centricity in your experience? You know, I got to say, those words customer centricity, even though I've written you know, two and a you know, third book with, with that uh, title, uh, those words are very misleading. Yeah. And there's too many companies that see those words and think, that's us. We are centered around every customer, you know, or, or we are centered around the customer. The customer is at the center of everything we do. And I hear that, no, that's not what I'm talking about over here. Uh, again, it's my fault, it's a bad choice of words. Uh, what customer centricity is, what the, these books are, what my research is, yeah. is a celebration of the differences across our customers. There is no average customer. Yeah. It's important for us to know the extremes, especially the customers on the kind of right tail, which is to say the most the most valuable, the most profitable yeah. customers. And so those are the customers we want to be centered around. We can't be everybody's best friend. Yeah. We gotta pick and choose. We have limited resources, and the wants and needs of our customers are so different that we gotta, we gotta decide which ones we're gonna invest in. Yeah. And these models and all that can give us real good guidance about which customers to be centered around. Yeah. So that, that's the, the, the biggest misconception, is, is that it, too many people view it as a celebration of the customer instead of a celebration of the differences across them. That's why data is so important, right? And being able to figure out which cohorts you should be focusing on, where the value is coming from. What um, what percent? Again, in, in some of the work that you've done, what percentage of customers or companies like Force, for example, are actually putting this at the forefront of their strategic planning, how they're thinking, how they're building that into the DNA, the cultural fabric of the organization? I love it. We're seeing it more and more, uh, and. And of course, there's two ways to approach it. Uh, first and foremost would be inside out. Like, yeah. Let's just let's get our house in order before we start boasting about it. Uh, let's start instead of just organizing ourselves purely around the products that we sell and the traditional <coughs> metrics that we would associate with products, like you know, what's the market share of our flagship brand? Um, let's reorganize ourselves around customer segments and let's uh, change our, our dashboards, not just to reflect, but to really emphasize customer metrics like retention and lifetime value. Yeah. Uh, and so, so a lot of it is just a, a lot of uh, internal transformation, which is hard, which doesn't come naturally. And again, isn't taught in business schools. Yeah. Uh, so, so part of it is just a lot of the struggles with that. And you mentioned the culture piece too. Again, it's a Correct. very different kind of culture to be around customers as opposed to the brand or the product. And then there's the outside in part. Uh, a lot of companies that uh, are feeling undervalued by Wall Street, and they just know that they have all, they have the, these great customers who are locked in, who love them, they're gonna stay with them forever, but, but, the, but the outside investors don't have a good sense about that, they can't see it. So a lot of companies have been, been coming to, to, to me and, and, and my, my newer company, Theta, mm -hmm. Uh, to basically say, we want to demonstrate to our stakeholders, to our investors, what we're really worth by showing the value of the customer. So it's this, this kind of more outside-in approach. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a lot of the work that I've been doing recently on customer-based corporate valuation, 
working with private equity firms, other investors, and again, other kinds of financially oriented stakeholders to show the value of the company through its customers. And basically my job is to work on the inside out, the outside in, but to try to find a common set of metrics, a common set of practices to build a bridge between the CFO and the CMO. Uh, and it's been going pretty well so far. Long way to go, but but so far so good. Just in that similar vein, how do you feel, what's your, your thoughts around how COVID and the global pandemic has affected this, this very thing that we're talking about? It's very interesting. Uh, when, when COVID started, I don't want to make it sound like I was happy about COVID, and of course not. But just purely from a data standpoint, I thought, this is going to be good. Mm. Because uh, people can't walk into restaurants anymore. they got to order through the mobile app. And so the electron microscope of the customer is going to get even more focused. We're going to be able to tag and track individuals in an even more granular, more timely way than ever before. Uh, so I thought it was going to be just a, a kind of a, a real change point for, for companies to really embrace that granular data. And Well, I was wrong about that. And it's kind of obvious that, that uh, uh, for too many companies, it, it, COVID was less about opportunity. It was more about survival. And so let's focus on, you know, curbside pickup. Um, and they actually did not double down on the opportunity that all of this kind of online and, and app-based buying offered. Uh, so I was, I was kind of disappointed about that. The other thing is uh, everybody and her sister said COVID's changing everything. It's completely changing customer behavior and it's changing it in a permanent way and there's no going back. And I know, having done all of this research and having tagged and tracked customers through lots of different domains, and even though COVID was unique, but it's yep. a lot of other big dramatic changes, some good, some bad, um, that it's, it's kind of interesting how customer behavior kind of snaps back to what it was before. So early on, I was saying, by the time this whole pandemic is over, you know, 2021. Okay, I was wrong about that. Um, but uh, what we're going to see in those cohorts of customers will snap back to the way it was in 2019. And we're seeing exactly that. So maybe the psychology, maybe the way that people approach the decisions might be right. different. But I'm a behavioral kind of guy. And if you look to see, you know, how many customers are we acquiring and how long are they staying and how often are they buying and how much are they spending, the cohorts that we're acquiring today look just like the ones we were acquiring just before COVID. Uh, and uh, some people have a hard time believing that, but uh, two of my former PhD students, one of whom is my co-founder on these companies, Dan McCarthy, uh, and this other student, Shin O'Blander, have a marvelous new paper where they're showing just that. They're looking yeah. at these cross-cohort effects specifically through COVID and showing that for so many companies, for so many sectors, it's kind of like COVID never happened. Really, uh, And again, it's not that we're going to forget about it. Uh, business practices might be different, but customer behavior, largely the same as it was before. Even with the shift and the move to online, because I would have thought that be, you talked about it, you know, being able to sort of track every move of the customer is, is a big part of what we're talking about today. I mean, what's the lesson learned for companies post-COVID as it relates to customer behavior and customer centricity? That these patterns are incredibly robust. They're inc incredibly enduring. Uh, you really have to think about them almost as, as laws of gravity, that, th that things can happen, whether it's activities on the part of the firm or external things like COVID mm -hmm. that might just kind of, you know, uh, disrupt gravity for a moment. But, but those laws are... 
you, you can't escape them for long. <laughs> you know, you could jump up and look, I'm avoiding gravity, but you're coming back down. Uh, and and so instead of um, instead of convincing yourself and your your peers and your stakeholders that our company is different, our customers are different, and it's always changing. So all of that stuff you're doing with your data and your models doesn't apply to us. Uh, you you got to lean into it. You got to just maybe resign yourself to it, uh, and and embrace these patterns. And and then the customer centricity stuff kicks in. Yeah. Capitalize on them. Uh, again, a lot of companies are moving in that direction, uh, but there's still a lot that are kind of clinging to these old ways, thinking that it doesn't apply to them. Right. Right. We uh, b before we kick things off today, we we talked a little bit about you know some of the work that you've done with Bain and, and some other consulting firms, you know, which kind of brought up a discussion we had around NPS. And a lot of our listeners, you know, think about NPS, think about how they're measuring client satisfaction. What's your view on that? I have the ultimate love-hate relationship <laughs> with that promoter score, which actually for an academic uh, says a lot because most academics just hate NPS, uh, and part of it is is jealousy. Uh, part of it is turf. A lot of academics have spent their careers coming up with, with these, these batteries of, of questions to measure customer satisfaction. Yep. And then these couple of Bain consultants come along with one question just kind of blows all of them out of the water. Um, so there's a lot of kind of you know, jealousy about it. But for me personally, um, uh, just the, the, the concept of it, the, the origin story with you know, Fred Reicheld and later with a lot of help from Rob Markey coming up with Net Promoter Score is exactly aligned with a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about. Um, uh, Fred Reicheld, before he first came up with NPS, back in 1996, a long time ago, wrote a book called The Loyalty Effect. And the whole point of that book, it's a very good book, it was way before its time, basically said not all customers are created equal, and if we can find who those loyal customers are and kind of build our business around them, then we're gonna, great things are gonna happen. They're gonna stay with us a long time, buy very often, they're gonna you know, get other people to buy from us, they're gonna be cheaper to serve, they're gonna give us lots of ideas about new products and services we should develop for them. It's very similar to the customer centricity stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Raikel said, we need a metric that shows how well companies are doing at this. Uh, and if you think about net promoter score, Let's find those people who love us, the promoters. Let's find the people who eh, don't. I don't like the word detractors, but whatever. Uh, and, and let's take the difference. So let's, let's look at the spread among the customers, not the average, not how happy is the average customer, mm -hmm. the actions in the spread. So I love that idea. It's a celebration of heterogeneity, just like everything I do. Um, so that's the love part, and I've and I've had some some wonderful collaborations with Bain to kind of go hand in hand with this attitudinal metric of would you recommend us yep. and the behavioral metrics of customer retention and lifetime value to triangulate around just you know good business success. The hate part of NPS is little to do with Bain, a little to do with the metric itself, but it's there's, there's many, many companies that don't really understand the origin story and are just jumping on the NPS bandwagon because everybody else has jumped on as well, uh, but they don't really understand what it means and they start using this metric for all sorts of things that it wasn't intended for right. and it starts becoming uh, kind of a, a goal. You know, we are gonna achieve NPS 50 by year's end and that's kind of not the point of it. Uh, so, so it's been just you know just abused and misused, and again the the, the fathers of it, Reichelt and Markey at Bain, 
uh, just find it extremely frustrating that this is this is their baby and look at what people are doing. And of course, what happens is then a lot of people inside the companies get annoyed with it because yeah. it's not another NPS initiative. <clears throat> and the customers get annoyed with it, not another zero to 10, would you recommend us question. Uh, so so it's, it's, it's been you know, problematic in that way. And, and again, I wish people would, would go back and understand why it was first developed and, and, and what those initial use cases were, I think it would be used more effectively. So, so what would be your recommendation or advice for companies that are so heavily focused on this in terms of avoiding some of those pitfalls or the traps, as it were? Well, it, it fits hand-in-hand hand with the customer centricity stuff. Right. That it's, you know, not all customers are created equal. Um, let, let's figure out what makes those, those, you know, those valuable customers or those promoters different. Right. Uh, and let's uh, primarily build our business around them. So when it's time to come up with that next new product, instead of going to the, the, the R&D people and say, hey, come up with a product that's going to be broadly appealing. We want, we want this, this new game or clothing line or you know whatever it's going to be um, to, appeal, to appeal to as many people as possible. No, 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 no. Um, in my book, and again, I think it largely aligns with the, the NPS thinking, it's let's focus disproportionately on those few high-value customers, that if we can figure out what makes them tick, what makes them different, what they're looking for, uh, and come up with products and services for them, it's going to enhance their value and help us acquire more like them. Yeah. That's going to move the needle. That's actually going to have a much greater ROI than trying to play it right down the middle towards some average customer who doesn't really, isn't yeah. that valuable to us. You know, it's it's an interesting sort of commentary around the NPS score because a lot of a lot of our customers and a lot of our listeners are, are very much integrating that into how they run their business as an indicator of how the business is performing. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is actually you've got to peel back that proverbial onion to understand exactly what's going on and pairing. And so, how do how in your experience, how are customers doing that? What are some of the tricks of the trade for them to go a couple of levels deeper to better understand those cohorts so that they can really deliver bank? Because what I'm hearing is bang for buck. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that, like I said before, there's a wonderful interplay between the kind of quanti behavioral models that I'm focusing on and the attitudinal approaches, whether it's net promoter score or some yeah. other satisfaction. So, <clears throat> so a lot of the work that, that I'll do, often in conjunction with, with companies, often with, with ad agencies and so on, let's start with the lifetime value thing. Yeah. Let's first figure out the value of each and every customer, uh, and let's understand that it, it, it usually looks like this, which is to say there's just, most of our customers are not that valuable, but then there's this long right tail of customers who just love us, who get our logo tattooed on their body parts. Um, and then let's overlay that with the attitudinal questions. So let's find out what is it in terms of wants and needs and desires and frustrations that are different for those high, those few high value customers versus the many so-so ones. Yep. Again, the promoters versus the detractors in some sense. Uh, and, and so let's understand, again, what, what kind of messaging, what kind of product features uh, what kind of you know aspirational celebrity, whatever, um, would, would be different for those groups. And then use that, whether it's in our marketing messaging or in our product development, uh, as, as we go out there and try to, try to leverage those, those yeah. higher value customers. And is it fair to say that that's, that requires a sort of a, a combined approach, looking at the quantitative side of 
what the data is and the statistics are telling you paired with the qualitative side. Such so, an important yeah. point. And again, I'm, I used to think I can give you my lifetime value model and you just wave it over each customer's head and like, you know, money will come raining down from the sky. It, no. <laughs> uh, I, look, I'm the first to admit that the kinds of models that I build are more of a flavor of, you know, what, when, how much. Yep. I'm not a why kind of guy. Right. <laughs> um, we need the why. Uh, and so so whether it's it's just asking simple attitudinal questions, you know, why do you like us, or getting a little bit deeper into into personality or, or maybe even into, into to neuroscience, but to, to get just as much deeper than just the observable behavior alone to, to understand what makes those high-value customers different uh, and how to appeal to them and, and find more like them. Uh, and, and, I, and I love it. Uh, even though it's not my area of expertise, I love partnering on those kinds of projects because, yeah. A, it makes the models more effective. It's just missing something without it. B, I learned something. It's, it's actually, I just, I, I, I might not do that, that kind of qualitative work, but I look at the experts who, who do it well and say, you know what? That's, that's, that's pretty smart. That's pretty clever. And especially when we could find the interplay with the quant stuff, uh, that's the holy grail. Well, I'm, I'm, it's music to my ears because it is the foundation of what we here at Force are called the human experience. And so one of the things that we believe is that behind every data point is a customer, a human being, right? And that's really where the, the, the notion of human experience and our human experience platform has come from because over the course of the last couple of years, you know, we saw the same patterns. We saw companies that were really adept at understanding statistically or quantitatively what was happening within their customer base through data collection and understanding those patterns. But what was missing was that next layer down, right? The qualitative side. And so over the course of the last couple of years, you know, we've paired a bunch of different assets, technology assets through M&A work that we've done to bring together the ability to, to go that level, those next two, three levels deeper mm -hmm. and ask the customer, what is it about the customer experience with this particular company that you like mm -hmm. and ask them how they feel about what it's like to walk into their stores or buy a pair of Air Jordans or what have you, right? What's your view in terms of the human experience as it relates to the work that you do? A couple of things. So uh, if you do it, just like with, with my models, the quantity stuff, if you do it in a vacuum and you don't get the why, it's, it's going to be harder to take action on it. Or, yeah. or it's going to be, it's not hard, but, but to take effective action on it. So, so there's that part of it. Now let's flip it around and say, if you do all the qualitative stuff without the quant to support it, and you can go out there and do all of these, you know, these depth interviews or you know, anthropological following people around and yeah. so on. But if you do that in the absence of knowing the financial value of the customers, you might be spending too much time focusing on the wrong thing. Exactly, obsessing yeah. over customers who are you know so-so. And it's nice to know. I'm not saying it's necessarily wasted, but it's not. You're not going to get as much of an ROI on it. Yeah. So you kind of need both. And 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 it's kind of funny. The the, the human thing. I, I have a love-hate relationship with humans. <laughs> the, uh, on one hand, uh, we need to humanize the quanti things that I'm doing, yep. right? We've we got to ask those why questions and get, get to a, a, just a more fundamental level of understanding. But at the same time, um, I worry when, um, uh, when we overdo the H part, 
Um, and we start saying, well, every individual is unique. Um, and, and we start to say, you know, there are no predictable patterns here. Because uh, that's just not true. Because it turns out that, that, that when we look at humans, you know, from a distance and in a collection, there are some just amazingly robust patterns that emerge. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to get in too deep and get into the whole one-to-one -one personalized thing because that's not as effective as dealing, say, at say a cohort level. Yep. So it's knowing how deep to get, but you know, knowing also where to where to draw the line. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're working on a new project. I think it was Theta. Tell us a little bit about that. That's that's to do with more on the employee side, if if I'm not mistaken. Is that so, correct? so actually, I've, I've, so two new companies. Uh, so one of them, Theta, focuses on customer-based corporate valuation. Got it. Uh, and so there we've been working uh, primarily with, with private equity firms. Yeah. They're going to go out there and buy that digitally native men's underwear company, and we're going to help them understand what that company is worth through the lens of the customer. How are they going to acquire? How long are they going to stay? How often are they going to buy? And how much are they going to spend? Those are the drivers of revenue. Mm -hmm. We can do a better job of projecting revenue and therefore projecting the value of the firm from the bottom up using the, the whole customer lens. Yep. So, so that's what Theta is all about, and that, that's been great. Uh, and I have a new company called uh, Encompass Labs. Uh, it's, a, it's totally different, and in some sense much more tangential to a lot of the research that I've done. Uh, that's much more human stuff. Yeah. They were actually come up with some, some crazy interesting uh, algorithms to replace the old 360-degree assessment. Right. Uh, and uh, I could talk about it for days. Uh, but but yeah, to, to find way to, to get ways to get people to evaluate each other uh, in a way that's both simpler but but more statistically effective to get cleaner scores and just yeah. how good they are. Uh, it's 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 weird because it it doesn't directly relate to all this other stuff I've been yeah. talking about. Believe it or not, it's something that I came up with as a way to grade papers in the course that I teach on lifetime value, but it's just kind of taken on a life of its own. But it just goes back to, to the, you know, the, the very first question you asked. Yeah. I'm just a nerdy, mathy kid that will look at different patterns that are out there and say, can we quantify this? Is there, is there a way that we can measure this better and then learn something from it? Just another example of that. But I, and, and I totally agree. I, I, I would venture to say that you know a happy employee and a productive employee leads to a very positive customer experience. You would you would like to think that there was that correlation. Do you have a sense on that in some of the work that you've done? It's it's interesting. Uh, yes, of course, I, I I believe that's the case. But it's it's interesting that we haven't looked at that customer employee crossover as much as I'd like. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, like I said, with with customers, we'll start with the behavioral. We'll overlay the attitudinal. Uh, it, would, it would be wonderful to then relate that all the way back to um, in either direction, to ask them about which specific employees were they uh, working with. Because we might find that certain employees just tend to have this magic touch to either identify or help create higher value customers. Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's, let's take our electron and microscope of the customer value. and you know, bring the employee into the, the, the view as well. Um, there have been some people who have done that. So, for instance, uh, uh, one guy has done a lot of really good work on customer centricity, but but these days is focusing much more on that employee piece of it. A, a gentleman by the name of uh, Michael Lowenstein has some, some really good books on the 
pure customer part, but but more and more these days, he is bringing the employees into focus. Yeah. And I think that's that's a. I wish I could say I had done more, not yet. But I think it's a it's a, it's a very fertile area. Yeah. So you know uh, things are changing daily, constantly. The you know the macroeconomic environment, what's happening in the global economy. You know we've got all sorts of events that are taking place. What advice do you have for CEOs like me that are running businesses that are trying to extract more value from their customers, given the fact that they're having to make decisions around expense base and cutting costs and, and having to really sharpen how they're managing their companies? Okay, a couple of things. So, so number one, you can't manage what you can't measure. Here, here. Um, and uh, and again, for, for too many years, we've used customers as this loosey-goosey thing that we can't measure it, so you know, we'll just make stuff up. But we can measure. <laughs> That's what the audit's all about. Um, so, so let's just be more rigorous, more accountable about the, the, the customer piece. Um, so that, that's real important. Um, let's not get, uh, I mean, we have to be very mindful of, of, of recessions and, and other changes that, that are taking place. But at the same time, back to the COVID story, uh, let's not overthink it and let's not uh, just, you know, assume that everything's going to change. We can raise that hypothesis, but let's do our customer base audit and let's do it every quarter or so and let's see if those customers we acquired let's say, during the economic downturn are different and, and stay different than those who were acquired before. Let, let's kind of put that to the test. Uh, and you might be surprised to see just how, um, and not, not to say every cohort of customers is identical to the one before, that's not true at all, but how, um, how slow those, those shifts in, in actual behavior take place. Uh, so, you know, do the audit. And if you see, if, if, if you do it regularly, if you do it quarter after quarter after quarter, and you, it's going to give you some sense of what you expect to see in the next quarter. And if you see, oh, the next group of customers we just acquired are different than the norms that we've been seeing, yep. that's going to tell us something. That's going to tell us something very early. And it's going to give us very specific advice. What makes them different? Is it that they're not spending as often or they're not spending as much when they do? Uh, so it's going to give us some sense of, of uh, you know, immediate short-term things that we might want to address, and then longer-term things to help uh, you know understand the the basis of those changes. So, f for those people listening right now uh, that are that are hearing what you're saying and and are going, to, you know, absolutely, is something we need to be doing more of, and focusing a lot more of our resources on this. Any thoughts in terms of what's the what, from a simple sort of tactical first step? What would be your number one piece of advice? Oh, well, I hate to say it depends. <laughs> um, it, it depends a bit on the, the, the nature of the company, its age, uh, its, its data infrastructure. Uh, for instance, if you don't have, if, if you're a young company or you're just getting out of the gate, uh, then a lot of this customer stuff I'm talking about is, is phase two. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, early on, it's just product, product, product. Let's sell as much of that product as we can. Let's just try to build as broad a base as we can. Almost contradicting myself here. But I recognize that a lot of this customer stuff doesn't kick in until we really have an, enough data, enough wind beneath the wings yeah. in order to be able to do an audit, in order to be able to look at, at cohorts and see how they differ from each other. So, so up to that point, just you know, sell, 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 but track, track, track. Make sure uh, you're, you're tagging and tracking those customers. You know, look at the Nike story. Yeah. 
they got into it kind of late. Yeah, I, I'm I'm willing to bet that a lot of customers forget that that big piece mm-hmm. right? and, exactly. and are not tracking and yeah. from a sort of a systems design or how if it's a technology company how they're developing their technology to be able to track these moments and and what their customers are doing along the journey yep exactly so what happens is uh you know growth is great but then after a year you know two or three it starts to plateau and yep. say, oh maybe we should do the customer thing uh man i wish we knew something about all those customers we've already acquired uh, so you have to look at like developing a, a CRM system. You really have to look at it as an investment instead of a cost. Yeah. Uh, and and too many companies, especially early on, are saying, "Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that." But you know, it's just not a priority right now. And and while it might not be a priority right now, uh, it's going to be an absolute requirement for tomorrow's priorities. Mm-hmm. You, you can't you can't start from scratch when you're a, a, a good ways in. So, so, so start to you know plant those seeds about it. Uh, so, so again, for 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 young companies, uh, it, uh, tactically it's going to be about product, but behind the scenes, do start some of that tracking so you can flip that switch when it's time to do so. Now, for companies that do have enough data, they just haven't done much with it. Mm. Start with an audit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, start to, to to look at the, the different analyses that, that we talk about in, in, in the book there and see uh, what your patterns look like. Do they look similar to the ones that we've laid out? Or, or, or any if they're different, look across your different cohorts of customers, the ones we acquired this year, the ones we acquired last year, the ones we acquired the year before. Do we see any systematic changes across them? And what does that tell us? What actions can we take as a result? Uh, so, so just if you do some very simple data summaries, this is even before we do anything about lifetime value. You know, anything any, before we do any models or forecasts or things with Greek letters, let's just look at the data that we have and, and see what kinds of stories it tells us, and do it in a very uh, and, and just a kind of an, an open, objective, descriptive way, instead of trying to like prove some kind of point with it. You mentioned earlier, you know, uh, the impact that that mentors have had that helped shaped your career. Over the course of that very distinguished career, you must have had a lot of influences on some of your decision making and, and the trajectory that that you in the arc that you moved in. What's the best piece of advice you ever got from one of your mentors? Well, again, uh, following Lee McAllister and uh, you know, saying you ought to get a PhD in marketing, <laughs> nothing compares to that. That 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 changed everything. Yeah. Um, uh, other advice, though, I, I, I've mentioned before, and you could probably just pick it up from our conversation. I could be kind of snarky and arrogant, uh, and I used to have a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Again, I, I didn't view myself as a marketing professor, and I'd be kind of embarrassed to say it, and I would be kind of a, a jerk about it just to show that I don't, I, I'm not a marketer. Uh, and, uh, and it was a, a, a former colleague of mine. In fact, it was very interesting. After a year or two at Wharton, uh, a, a wonderful colleague named Erin Anderson, who's uh, since passed away, uh, she said, um, I got something for you to read here. And this, but keep in mind, this is like 1989. This is a long time ago. Um, and she goes over to bookshelf and she pulls a book called The Imposter Syndrome, yeah, right. something that we all know about today. I'd never heard of it back then. Yeah. Um, and she said, you should read this. And I did, and it was talking to me. You know, I was trying to be somebody else. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and since reading that book and realizing that I, you know, I don't have to be all that, um, and, and just becoming comfortable 
with the kinds of work that I do and, and, and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not doing this to impress anyone else. I hope they are impressed, but I'm doing it because it's what I enjoy. Yeah. Being, you know, just more comfortable in my own skin. Uh, uh, that, that, that's meant a lot to me. Uh, and, I, and I look at just a, a lot of people, like students, colleagues, uh, people in industry who are still trying to, you know, act like something else. And uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's uh, a, a lot of people will eventually come around to realizing that they don't need to. But well, you know, life has this funny way of, of sorting you out, whether you like it or not. Uh, that, that, that's yeah. right. But, but uh, let that sorting process yeah. uh, happen sooner uh, and, and kind of you know, admit to yourself and, and others or try to figure out who, who you really are. Yeah, <laughs> great. That, that's great piece of feedback. So it wouldn't be an HX Superheroes podcast if I didn't ask you that my favorite question is, can you tell us what has been the best customer experience you've ever had and why? I know it. Okay. It's, it's a you had to be there kind of thing. Um, uh, I, I tend to, um, as, as you can see, uh, not dress very well. I'm a pretty casual kind of guy. Um, but years and years and years ago, um, my wife bought me or insisted that I buy a pair of Ferragamo shoes. And I loved them. And I wore them all the time. They're really, really, really good. Uh, and when they started to you know, wear out a bit, um, I walked into the Ferragamo store on Fifth Avenue in New York. Yeah. Uh, and I said, I want to buy a, a new pair of shoes. The salesperson, just standing there right in the, the door, she looked down at my feet. And she said, you're wearing an 11D, but what you really need is a 10 and a half E. She looked at my feet, and just from the way the shoes were wearing out, she not only knew what size my feet were, but that, that it, was, it was the wrong size shoe. And she said, let me show you. Uh, and, and so she pulled the size that she thought was appropriate, and it was like, Wow, I thought these shoes were good already, but man, they're so good. And they're buying two pairs right on the spot. <laughs> um, uh, it was just, just so amazing that, that uh, w without asking me a single question or anything, just looking at the shoes on my feet, that she could kind of size up, size me up so well and, and say, here's exactly what you need. Yeah. I, it's, it, to me, I, I still think about that, that, that encounter. It's, it's like magical that, that someone could do that. And then just such a, you know, just a, a friendly, persuasive, but not show-offy kind of way. And, and again, I ended up buying two pairs of shoes on the spot when I wasn't even sure I needed, needed one more. Um, again, you had to be there, but uh, yes, you see that kind of magic happen in a retail setting, there's just nothing like it. Yeah, that, that's, uh, I couldn't agree more. So for, for again, for our listeners, where, they, where can they get the customer audit book and many of your other published books? Um, well, they're, they're published by Wharton School Press. Yep. So they can go to their website or go to, you know, Amazon or any uh, online bookseller. They're, 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 they're out there. Uh, and, and even if people don't want to buy the book, you know, a lot of good conversations like yeah. this. There's a, if people Google my name, they'll find lots of, 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 of just other videos and podcasts and snippets of it. 
uh, you know, again, I, 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 I'm not out there to sell books. I am out there to spread gospel. Yeah. Um, but if people want to buy the book, that's nice too. <laughs> well, Peter, you've certainly spread the gospel today. I want to thank you on behalf of, of Forsta and myself for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you and learning a little bit more how every customer and every client should be doing a better job of auditing their customers. And I think that's sort of the, the key message that came through in spades today. It's been an absolute privilege. And and uh, I wish you all the best on your, your London tour and, and hope to uh, stay connected with Thanks you. Thanks very much, Kyle. Great talking to you. Great talking to you as well. Thank you.